for a number of weeks. This is the third, if I'm not mistaken, week of talking about relationships. And just a quick review of last week. The first one we talked about relationships just in general and how we've actually got this ministry. It described as the ministry of reconciliation, that that's our job, is to facilitate relationships ultimately between people and God, but certainly between each other, people and people, horizontal relationships and vertical relationships. So then last week, we started the conversation of relationships more specifically in the vertical sense of relationship, of, of uh, our relationship with God. And in some sense, even unbelievers have relationship with God. There's a certain grace that God gives to all of mankind, people that are made in his image. His sunshine and his rain fall on the, the just and the wicked. So people that, that have food that aren't Christians, they don't understand it, but they have food because God gave it to them. We have food because God gave it to us. We, we have any good thing, and I can never remember the order of this, but every good thing given and every perfect gift, or every perfect gift and every good thing given comes from the Father of lights, from his throne that comes to us. So if you have anything that's of any value that, that's, that's good, you have it because God gave it to you. So we talk now about this vertical relationship, and when that vertical relationship is excellent, then the horizontal relationships, at least as much as depend on us, are going to be excellent as well. And if you have two people with excellent vertical relationships, it's impossible for them to have a bad relationship with one another. So, so last week, the, the point was that if you're going to get into a relationship with God, you need to know your place. And we, we talked about um, we don't have a pure relationship with God, pure, like side to side. He's above and we're below. I didn't think to grab the scripture last week, but in Isaiah 55, I believe it is, it, it speaks to God's ways and God's thoughts being so much higher and so far superior to our own. And, and maybe when we talk about the fear of God or the reverence of God, we'll, we'll, we'll lead in with that conversation as to why it is we should have a reverence for God because he's so far superior to us. He created us. We talked about God as creator and us as creation, uh, potter and clay, that the, the clay doesn't tell the potter, no, 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 that's not what I am. The potter decides what he does with the clay, and we need to just understand that. Um, we talked about all things, and all these different places in the Scripture where it talked about God, that all things are by him, all things are through him. He was before all things. All things are held together by him. We exist through him, and all things are for him. So when we get to thinking we're somebody and that we're the center, that's, that's the interesting thing sometimes about sharing the gospel with people is oftentimes you start to talk to them about God and who he is and all those different things, and they, they, they can't see him anyway but themselves being the center of the universe. So you have to try to get a person to step back into the broader context. And just, just for the sake of this conversation, would you do me a favor, please? Can I put God at the center of the conversation and, and you somewhere out on the periphery? Otherwise, it's not going to make any sense to you because we'll see everything from such a selfish lens that we can't understand a God who would behave the way that God chooses to behave. We are for God. He created us for himself, for his pleasure. That, that kind of leads to this word doulos, uh, D-O-U-L-O-S. It's a Greek word that's translated slave, bond slave, bond servant, all through the New Testament. And we saw how the heroes of the New Testament, so to speak, the, the Peters, the Pauls, the Judes, the Timothys, would call themselves doulos in their relationship to God. Paul, an apostle a bondservant of Christ, Peter, a bondservant of Christ, a bondslave of Christ, um, all these references to how that relationship works and that they saw themselves as doulos, as bondslave or bondservant to God, and that that's a good way for us to understand as we come into relationship with God that that relationship is not God's my co-pilot, God's my homeboy. He's not. He's absolutely not. He's so, so perfect and so holy and so righteous 
and so loving and so merciful and so gracious that it's, a, it's really a bad thing for us to, to try to pull him down or, heaven forbid, pull ourselves up to his plane. We need to recognize our place in relationship with God. Um, the Apostle Paul got rebuked by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he said, Paul, Paul, you're always kicking at the goads. It's like Paul had a, he had a plan and where he was going. And the Lord had been trying to get Paul to go a different way. And if you're a, if you're a guy plowing a field back in those times, you'd have an ox and you'd have a plow. And the ox is wanting to go where the ox wants to go. So you have this pointy stick called a goad. And when, it, when the ox starts to want to go a different way, you give him a little taste of that goad in the backside. And, and then the ox will straighten out because he doesn't like it. And then he wants to go this way. And you goad him back to a straight line. And that's what Jesus was trying to say to Paul. You're always trying to make your own way. You're kicking against the goads. Why don't you just do what you're called to do? And, and, and that needs to be us. We understand that we have no life of our own. Once we become a Christian, we've chosen to deny our own will, our own lives, and that our life would then be found in Christ and in his will. So as we start relationship, we'll pretend like we're just starting relationship with Jesus. We need to do it knowing our place and knowing who he is. All right, then this week, we're going to talk about covenant. Covenant is the mechanism by which we come into anything more than just a basic relationship with God. The relationship that the world has with God Above that requires covenant. Eternal relationship requires covenant. Being in his spirit requires covenant. So that's what we're going to talk about today, how we actually, um, what covenant is a little bit, um, examples from the Old Testament that, that kind of give us a peek at covenant, then what it looks like in the new covenant, um, how it's accomplished, and then what happens as a result at probably a 10,000-foot perspective. To, to start that, um, I found a video that I'll show you. It's a, it's a great video, and it's a good complimentary video for, for my, uh, my way of seeing because the, the video guy explains covenant as like this um, partnership with God. That's a little um, irreverent for my personal taste, but it's not bad because we have this thing called a commission, a commission where God has commissioned the church on his behalf to go about and do his, his will and his work as the, the hands, the feet, the eyes, the, the mouth, the body of his son. So I would see us more in the doulos perspective, and he sees us more in the partner perspective, but he does a great job of kind of explaining covenant. So if you would, why don't you run that for me? If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, 
The Earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. So I, I looked uh, for definitions of covenant, and the one that I like the best reads like this. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. So... Um, you could see in the covenants that they described in the Old Testament, there was one where there was no two-sided agreement. You know, I'll do this if you do that. That was the, the covenant that God made with Noah, where he just made a declaration that there would be no more floods. He wasn't going to kill all of mankind like that ever again. But generally, there's two sides to a covenant, and both people bring, um, or both parties, bring something to the covenant. Now, the, the best example that we probably have in our culture is the marriage covenant, where two people decide that they're going to spend their lives together in what we would call the marriage covenant. And when they, in the Christian sense, when they come together to be married, there's typically a formal ceremony, although I'm not sure there has to be. Um, but there's no covenant if there's nothing that binds them together other than they just want to. There's people who live together in an exclusive or semi-exclusive fashion that don't necessarily have the kind of covenant that God would prescribe for married people. So in, in the marriage covenant in Christianity, we say things like um, forsaking all others. I, I take Teresa to be my wife, forsaking all others. So these vows that we make are the, the terms that actually are defining the covenant that we're in. So when, when we got married, 
we made a covenant. She said she wouldn't take anybody but me, and I wouldn't take anybody but her. Because I choose her, I, I don't choose everybody else. It says things like, uh, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, in richer and in poorer. And, and those are all necessary things because people will get into um, kind of a bad spot in their relationship, and they'll make the ever-famous declaration, I didn't sign up for this. And reality is, yes, you did. You said that you were connecting your life with this person even when it's not fun, even when you don't want to be. You've made a, a covenant with this person based upon this set of terms, and that's what defines your covenant relationship. So that's how God defined relationship in what we would call the old covenant, the, the Mosaic or the covenant of the law, and that's how God establishes covenant in what we would call today our covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. And, and that's what I want to show you. Okay. The video touched on this. God desired a people. He chose Abraham and his seed in the Old Testament. And what he wanted was he wanted to have a people sanctified or set apart unto him that he could then uh, parade, so to speak, in front of the rest of the people of the world who all were serving idol gods and demon worship and all kinds of stuff, he wanted to set apart a people that were kind of like, in that sense, the light of the world, as, as the church is supposed to be. And they would see, wow, you know, these guys, their kids don't get sick, their, their livestock doesn't still birth any of its, you know, their cows and their sheep, and man, their God is better than our God. And that would draw people, they would be a light that would draw people unto God. But we know that Israel has not really done a very good job of being that light. In the church now, we're to be that light of the world, this, this sanctified, set-apart people unto God that he can then show his goodness and his glory through that would again draw the nations unto him that when he has his uh, wedding banquet with his son, that his house will be full. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 is an interesting little short course of Scripture speaking to us, the church now, in much the same way that God spoke to Israel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the, excellency, the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once... You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if, you, if you're looking for kind of a general statement, it's like to proclaim the excellencies of God. But we don't just do that with our mouths. We do it with our set-apart lives as well. And, and that's wherein come some of the terms of the covenant. So if you were to read um, Exodus and Deuteronomy there's, there's a bunch of really interesting covenant stuff in there. Like the Ten Commandments are covenant terms between God and his people that he mediated through Moses. Our covenant is between God and us mediated through our high priest, Lord Jesus. So an example from Exodus of like what a covenant term looks like. God speaking. Well, probably Moses speaking, but, but you shall serve the Lord your God, but you, you people, Israel, shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So God says, you shall this, and I will that. So if they will serve the Lord, now he, he goes into great lengths to explain to them what that means, how they will serve him. But he tells them amazing things like this. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will remove sickness from your midst. Let me just tell you, those are pretty powerful promises, amen? They are promises that he made in the old covenant, you know what the scripture says about the covenant that we have? It's a better covenant with better promises. So when we question whether or not we should be sick 
had they walked in covenant, they would not have been sick. There would have been no miscarriages. It seems to me that we ought to be able to expect the same. Anyway, little side note. The way God instituted his covenant, he, 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 he brings Moses up on the mountain and he gives him the terms of the covenant. Then he sends Moses down and he tells Moses to collect all the elders of the people and bring them to the mountain. And then you read the terms of the covenant to them, Moses. And, and we see that in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Obviously, God speaking. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember that from the Peter scripture? You shall be to me, God, to God, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called all the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So the Lord had Moses lay out for them the terms of the covenant. They responded, We agree with this covenant as as the elders, the leaders of the people. And God said, Okay, that's great. Now bring all the people to the mountain. And we see that in Exodus 24, starting in verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel as they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He established covenant between himself and between the people of Israel. And the way he did it was he shared with them the words of the covenant. These are the things. Remember now, we don't, we don't dial up God and say, God, um, hey, I was thinking I might like to have a relationship with you. I'm going to send somebody up to the mountain and share with you my terms. And if you agree with them, then I'll have a relationship with you. It doesn't ever going to work that way. God will always be the person who defines covenant. The creator defines the terms of relationship with that which is created, the potter with the clay. In Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, you can see that um, God means business. When he establishes covenant, it's because he wants to bless, because he wants to, he wants to shine those people up in such a great way that everyone will know that he is truly God and, and that he's the God that they should associate themselves with. But he has real expectations of his covenant people. So in uh, Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15, listen to this. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. So, so God's desire is to keep covenant with his people, that they would keep covenant with him, that they would love him. And man, I, I wish that we could take so many weeks to talk about this because love is at the very center of all of this. Love for the world, he made covenant with Israel. Love for the world, he sent his son. But love, culturally, it's, it's different than biblical love. God defines love for him. Like, you say, I love Jesus, and then you go get drunk. You say, I love Jesus, and then you knock down the poor guy, and you take his double chocolate donut for yourself. Um, God says, you don't love me. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you don't obey me, you don't love me. Those are Jesus' words in John chapter 14. And here you, say this, you see the same thing, that commanded to love their God. 
and, and then he will love them back by being faithful in covenant. I mean, he loves them just to offer them the opportunity for covenant. But, verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall, sur- you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life. See, there it is right there. God is prepared to just bless their socks off. But it comes in covenant. He can't. It's, it's almost like if we were to do something wrong, I would expect God to chasten me in a more substantial way than he would chasten an unbeliever. That he would chasten his son more than he would chasten someone who's not his son. And you'd say, well, wait a minute, but he loves you different than he loves him. I don't know, but I have a different relationship than that one does. But think of it this way. He's trying to use me to draw that person into a place of righteousness before him. If he doesn't chasten me when I don't act in accordance with our covenant, he's teaching them that it's okay to act how you want and be in covenant with God. So there's certain issues of how a father deals with a son or a daughter different than how he deals with the neighbor kid. So choose life. Choose it. It's a choice. That's what we see in Romans too. It says choose righteousness. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Make a choice. You choose. Here he says, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now, I'll touch on this again a little bit later, but the way that old covenant was communicated to the people, God had already chosen out those people. He drew them together. He, def- he, he had his, his mediator, his representative Moses, share for them the terms of the covenant and give them the opportunity to say, yes, I want to be in covenant or no, I don't, right? Today, it's very similar. But that, that uh, communication happens through the church by way of the gospel. So instead of drawing all of the world together, we go excuse me, person by person, small group by small group, and we express God's willingness or desire to come into covenant, reconciled relationship with the people of the world that aren't his people, that can't call him dad, by way of the gospel. That's the message that we share with somebody to come into a covenant relationship with God. Now, in the midst of this old custom co- covenant, Israel, they didn't do very well. And they, they caused themselves all kinds of relationship problems with God, um, ultimately to where they split themselves into two tribes, a northern tribe which of Israel, which was called Israel, and a southern tribe of the bigger Israel that was called Judah. And they actually warred with each other. They couldn't get along. And it was so bad in Israel that God used this nation state called Assyria to come over and then take the northern kingdom into bondage, and then, uh, which they were never released, and then uh, it, it got so bad between God and Judah that he used this guy Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonian Empire, to come and siege Jerusalem and Judah and take them all captive for 70 years to try to chasten them back into line how they were supposed to be. So up and down, up and down, up and down. Through the course of all this, there was another covenant that was spoken to. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, we see this new covenant spoken to. It's prophesied. And then through other books in in the Old Testament, the prophetic books, maybe all the books, you see elements of that new covenant prophesied. For example, in Isaiah 53, you, you see prophesied this Messiah that would come and God would establish this new covenant. And it doesn't... It doesn't speak in specific terms using the word covenant, but you see things 
about who the Messiah is, what he's going to look like, what he's going to do on behalf of people. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, you see this covenant, this new covenant actually prophesied. Starting in verse 31 of chapter 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I, which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Let me just stop there. It gives a great insight on how God sees his covenant people. He was a husband to them. Israel was like a bride to him. And we see in the New Testament where people that would still want to be friendly with the world and its systems and its evil ways are called adulteresses. You adulteress. So he still sees, and we're called the bride of Christ, so he sees us like a, like a man would see his wife, and then when, when she runs around with some other man, it's adultery. And when, when we don't walk according to how he's invited us in to be in covenant with him, it's the same kind of thing as a, as a cheating wife or a cheating husband. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So it's prophesied. And there's already a covenant, and God has always been faithful to the covenant, to that particular covenant, even though Israel wasn't. And God is always faithful to this new covenant, even though sometimes we aren't. Why is there a need for a new covenant? Hebrews and Romans gives, gives us a peek. In Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6, but now he has ordained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So the first covenant wasn't perfect. It wasn't a perfect covenant. When the people sinned, there were ways to make atonement for the sin, but the atonement wasn't perfect. That's why it had to be done again and again and again and again because it couldn't once and for all atone for their sins. Romans chapter 8 gives us a little peek as to what was the flaw in that old covenant. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The weakness of the flesh was the flaw of the Old Covenant. The, the Old Covenant was based in the keeping of, of laws and regulations and rules. And the people in their flesh, in their, in their um, corrupted nature, in their... Adamic, Adam nature, their, their first Adam nature, were not able to fulfill the covenant. They just couldn't do it. So, so the covenant was flawed in that sense that nobody could then have this eternal relationship with God. The issue that they had was righteousness. That's everybody's issue, is Righteousness. Everybody who can't have or doesn't have a relationship with God doesn't have a relationship with God because of righteousness. God is righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. There's no flaw. There's no character blemish in God at all. But every human being lacks that righteousness. So when you talk to somebody and you say, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? And they say heaven. And you ask them, well, how do you know that? And they say, because I'm a good person. They don't know they're not a good person. They're flawed. They're unrighteous. And, and they, they declare or deem themselves to be good people, right people, because they grade themselves on a class curve with other people. And if I'm looking to make myself look okay, I'm not comparing myself with you. I'm going to go find somebody who's a bum, who's just a, a thief and a stealer and, and, a, and a liar, and I'll say, well, look it, I'm better than that guy, so I must be okay. The reality is 
there is no class curve. There's only one standard of righteousness. It's God himself. So if we want to say that I'm okay because I possess the very righteousness of God, either we've responded to the gospel or we're a liar or we don't understand righteousness. Romans 3, 9 through 12. And, and, and you'd have to go back and grab the bigger context, but trust me, they're, they're okay for the point that I'm trying to make. Principally, they're, they're right on. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. When you hear Greek, it's not Jew. So any of you that, that don't have, you know, can't trace your ancestry back to one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel is a Greek in this context, a Gentile that both Jews and Greeks are all, all, under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And all, or all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then the scripture you're very familiar with, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so that almost makes the strong implication, if you wanted to understand, and I'm sure it's broader than this, but if you want to have some sense for the glory of God, it's in his righteousness. Because sin causes us to fall short of his glory. His glory must be based in his perfection and his righteousness. So see, there's no person, never has been, never will be, that's born of man that's righteous before God. Every single one is corrupted, and every single one lives without Jesus under the, the sentence of God's wrath eternally. So then, if relationship, eternal saving relationship with God requires covenant, then there's, there's two questions we should answer right here. The first is, how do we enter into this covenant? Remember, Israel entered into the covenant God laid out all the laws and the rules and the regulations and every, every single way they should behave, and they said, we'll do it. They'd establish covenant, just like Teresa and me. Will you forsake all others? I'll forsake all others. In sickness and in health, in sickness and in health, till death do you part, till death, in, in better or worse, yep, all these things, bam, we've established covenant. How do we enter? How do we establish covenant? And then what happens when we do? The covenant that we have is a, is, is a covenant of grace, not a covenant of law. So, so we don't enter into covenant with God by keeping laws. That would be called self-righteous. You'd have to be self-righteous to enter into covenant with God by keeping rules and laws and regulations. We've already seen that that, that mechanism doesn't work. It's flawed because we can't keep rules and laws. So, so we come into righteousness in a different way. And the way that we come is by grace through faith. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, starting right at the beginning. And you, Pat, Teresa, Margie, Annika, Kennard, Keith, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, dead to God under God's wrath. I'm, you know, that's me adding to. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's a way to describe Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, there's a great one, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved, or entered into covenant, for by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So no one will stand before God and be able to boast that they had self-righteousness. No one will. It's only by his grace. Now, God's grace 
in this context is, is experienced in two ways. The first way is that he offers it at all. God is under no obligation to offer any kind of reconciled relationship to anybody. Any unrighteous person, which is every person, God's not obligated. He has no reason why he has to. So it only happens by grace, by him offering grace. Larry kind of was obligated by righteousness to offer a double chocolate donut and a gift card to the guy up in Saginaw. But he wasn't obligated by law. He did it because he chose to. Larry and Diane chose to extend grace to that man that they came in contact with. That's what God does. By grace is by God's graciousness that he's offered us the opportunity to be reconciled to him. The second um, aspect of grace that you see in the salvation conversation is that spiritual matters are spiritually discerned. That means by the Holy Spirit. So we have, if we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit. So spiritual matters, we can understand them because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to show us what, what they mean and what they are. But the carnal person, the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, can't discern spiritual matters. So a second act of grace that happens is that God anoints a person, so to speak. He gives them grace to be able to even consider what would be foolishness to them otherwise, this message of the gospel. Through faith. By grace, through faith. Faith, people will say, well, you know, you just have... um, you just have blind faith believing in this Jesus person that you believe in or fairy tale that you believe in. But faith isn't that. Faith isn't just a mental ascent towards something. Like when I put my substantial weight down on this chair right here, I had faith that it would hold me. I trusted it. I I, I trusted that it was here. I I, I believed that this chair that I had my hands on was actually here. The, The kind of faith that brings you into a relationship with God is not just a mental ascent. I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. It's another one you hear when you go to share the gospel with people. Well, I believe in God. Well, good. (laughs) It buys you nothing. I believe in Jesus too. buys you nothing. Because that's not the faith that saves. Faith that saves has two elements. The first element of faith that saves, for a person who is who is outside of relationship with God, wanting to come into relationship with God, there's two elements to that. The first element is repentance. And the second element is actually called faith. But it's a, it's a believing or a trusting in something, or in this case, in something in someone, when those two, component, two, two components, when those two components are present, then a person has has come into what the Bible would call saving faith, and they're at that point then reconciled to God. So let me describe those first so you can see them in the Scriptures. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel. Romans uh, chapter 1 and verse 16. Just a, just a comment on the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Acts 20 and 21. I love this because you see, Jesus said repent and believe. The implication is the kingdom is at hand, If you're going to enter the kingdom, you'll have to first repent, and then you'll have to believe in the gospel. But places say, whosoever should call on the name of the Lord will be saved, or many other things that would imply if this, then that. But you have to take the counsel of the whole of the New Testament to understand the fullness of how you come into this covenant relationship with God. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul has, um, he's on his way, I think, to Jerusalem, And he sent someone to get the elders of the church in Ephesus and bring them to him because he's pretty certain he's never going to see him again. And he wants to say goodbye to them. So as Paul is is having his final words with the elders of the church at Ephesus, this is what he says. For I am not ashamed of, 
Oh, wrong scripture, sorry. Acts 20, starting in verse 20. He's, he's talking about his own ministry here. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from, and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, repent and believe. And when Paul is summarizing the gospel message that he carried from door to door and that he taught the people and established the church in Ephesus, again, it is repentance towards God and faith or belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 16, 31 and 32, they said, this is, um, this is Paul and Silas, I think, as they're, the shackles have come off them. They're in this prison and this, this jailer is about to kill himself because he's going to get killed because the, the, he thinks the prisoners have all escaped. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So it, the implication here feels like, well, all I have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and I'll be saved. But he spoke the word of the Lord, which I'm assuming is probably the fullness of the gospel to these people. So you can't look at just one one verse and draw out of that if I have this mental ascent towards Jesus that I can be saved. Um, Acts 2, 37 and 38. So there was believe, here is repent. Now this is, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost and um, he's preaching. You know, all these people have come to where they are. There's loud noise of a mighty rushing wind and all these people are in there for the Passover and they come to where Peter and the, the disciples are at and Peter's preaching to them the gospel, essentially, and they get uh, pierced to the heart, like that anointing, that thing that happens from God, that grace that allows someone to respond to the gospel has touched them. And and here's what um, Peter says. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here you don't see anything about believing, but you see repent. And the other one you saw believe, but you didn't see a word about repentance. I think, personally, that Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, is, is the best place in the New Testament where all of it is pulled together. Here's how it reads. This is the Apostle Paul. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, that word of faith that Paul preached is the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So the connection that I make here is this. When Jesus says repent, or the Apostle Paul in another place says preaching repentance, when he says confessing with your mouth the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, he's essentially preaching repentance. So if Jesus is Lord, which means that my will is surrendered to his will, that I'm doulos and he's master, slave, master. I'm, someone says, hey, do you want to give your life to Jesus? How many times have you heard that? You talk about somebody say, hey, I didn't sign up for this. That's why they really need to understand what it means. You are giving your life to Jesus. You have no life of your own anymore. You've said that I have no will of my own. I am surrendered to the will of my Lord. Well, anything that you might, your flesh man, might want to do that's outside of that, you would repent from. So confessing Jesus as Lord is essentially a way of declaring that you're repenting. Okay. And then he says, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, that's a summary statement as well in that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sign that we have that he was an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. So when we see believe, repent and believe, what are we believing in the gospel? What's the gospel? That you're dead in your sins. You're children of wrath, but God sent an offering on your behalf in the person of his son. And he lived a perfect life such that he might be the spotless, sacrificial lamb offered for your sins to God so that your sins might be forgiven. Your debt would be paid and you could be reconciled into God, unto God as righteous. The resurrection is how we know that God accepted that sacrifice. Jesus was a perfect, 
sinless, spotless sacrifice to God, which was able to atone for our sins, we know that because of the resurrection. Scripture says the wage of sin is death. Had Jesus any sin, where would he be? Still dead. He would have stayed in the tomb. So when Paul in Romans 10 says this message of faith that I preach, he's talking about the gospel. He calls it faith, saving faith. And he says there's two elements. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's basically preaching repent and believe. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. We enter into then covenant with God, not by the keeping of commands, right? Not by the requirement of of doing righteous acts, but by faith. That's how, by faith. But we have to understand what faith means in that context, repent and believe. And you know what's beautiful is that in God's grace, what he's really asking us is to be sincere in our hearts. So um, how many of you, since your confession of faith, have been absolutely perfect at serving Jesus as Lord? No transgressions, no slips. Oops, my mouth got away from me once. Never any of that. Nobody. Yet it it didn't disintegrate your relationship with God. Why? Because he doesn't measure your behavior. You're not under law as a Christian. You're under grace. And what God looks to is your heart. And when, when we sin, God doesn't look at our behavior. He looks to see if our heart is sincere. Did we actually give our heart into the lordship of Christ over our lives? We're good. But when we sin, we must get some kind of junk on us, some kind of unrighteousness on us. And he says, but if you'll confess your sins to me, I will be righteous and I will be faithful and just or faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So even even though it doesn't separate us from God if we commit a sin, he's so, so gracious that he'll allow us to confess to him what he already knows so that that whatever kind of slime got on us, he'll cleanse us of that as well. That's a pretty good deal. Okay. So that's the first question. How, how is it that we establish this covenant? And the answer is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. If anybody asks you, repent and believe. That's something you really have to understand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this gospel which I preach to you, in which you stand, by, or excuse me, the gospel which I preach to you, that you received, that you responded to, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to that, which I preached to you at the first. Otherwise, your faith is vain. So if a person doesn't understand how they got to that place with God, how are they holding fast to that faith that they expressed to get to that place with God? I had a great experience with a guy earlier this week. Should have shared it as a testimony. I won't go into detail, but he drove past the church. You know, his life is in a rough place. He said, there's people up there. If they're there when I come back, I'm going to come and see if Pastor Pat's one of them. He came back. I was there. I've met the guy before. He actually um, helped Keith put the roof on the parsonage. And uh, he starts sharing with me, and I, and I ask him about his relationship with God. And he's like, well, you know, it used to be, but, you know. And I said, well, how, how do you know you ever had a relationship with God? And he had no inkling of, you know, any kind of answer that would indicate that he had actually responded to the gospel. So we talked about the gospel. It was really nice, really nice. It was an appointment. So it's important that we understand, how how did I come into relationship with God? Well, I repented from my sin and I placed my faith in the gospel. I believed that Jesus Christ was sacrificed as a payment for my sin debt to God and that God received that payment, stamped it, because Jesus was resurrected and because he lives, I live too. I mean, that's a short answer, but it's, it's the answer. All right, so then, if that's how, what happens? Here's what happens. Now, you could probably make a longer list if you wanted to, but this hits most of the high points. First thing that happens is we die. Now, you know, the order might be off a little bit. Somebody might argue. There's, I think it's, it's the Calvinist that says you're actually born again 
before you confess faith, that somehow God borns you again, and then you express your faith because you can't express faith unless you've been born again. Our, our sense would be the opposite of that. Because you expressed faith, even though it required God's grace for you to do it, your born-again experience happens, your regeneration happens after you've expressed faith. So maybe the order is not perfect here, but you'll get the gist of it. First, we die. Second, we're born again. Third, we're declared or, or made righteous before God. Four, our certificate of, certificate of sin is removed from us. And five, we are given the right to become children of God. So let me just give you some scriptural background for each one of those. First thing that happens is we die, right? Because our old self is corrupted. It's unrighteous. It can't be made righteous. The old man cannot be made righteous. All he can do is die. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you really did. You died. You've died if you're born again. You can't be born again if you don't die first, right? So you've died. Next, you're born again. 1 Peter 1. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. So you, you, you understand that, that when you made that profession of faith, spiritually, your old man died and your, your spirit man was made new. He was born again. And when you were born in your unrighteous state, in, your, in the first Adam, corrupted, it was by the seed of your father who was corrupted, your natural father. His seed and your mother's egg couldn't produce a righteous offspring because the seed was bad. So when you're born again, you're not born of natural seed because every natural seed is corrupt, all of them. But the seed of God is perfect. That's why Jesus had an earthly mother. He was the son of mankind, the son of man, but he did not have an earthly father. His conception didn't happen from Joseph's seed. It was the Holy Spirit that conceived him in Mary's womb. Otherwise, he'd have been born corrupted. So when you're born again, it's not a natural birth. It's a supernatural birth. And your spirit comes to life because you are conceived now in God, the Holy Spirit. That, that's a woohoo moment right there. All right, so first you die, then you're born again. Next, you're declared or you're made righteous before God. Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what, that's a big old mouthful right there. See, apart from the law, you are made righteous. If you were made righteous by the law, what would that imply? Self-righteousness. But we know that nobody has that. This course of scripture tells us that. So there's a different righteousness. It's called the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you could, you can't, but let's just pretend you could. You could be righteous in yourself. That would be righteous, but nobody can. So there's this other righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. When you expressed saving faith in Christ Jesus, you became righteous. The very righteous, it says the righteousness of God. God's very righteousness is you. So, so when you run around saying, oh, you know, I'm just a dirty old sinner saved by grace, you need to stop it. You're not a dirty old sinner saved by grace. You shouldn't identify with your old man. You identify with your new man. Perfect and righteous and, and, and beautiful and whole in the sight of God. But you don't understand. I just, you know, whatever. It's like, mm -hmm. doesn't matter. That doesn't make you unrighteous. God has decided to deem you righteous based upon your faith in his son. By gosh, you should just claim that righteousness. Don't walk around telling people that you're not righteous because you are. Well, they say, well, I did the same thing as you. Am I righteous? You say, nope. <laughs> and that'll stir them up a little bit. That might get you an opportunity to have a little gospel conversation with them, right? I'm righteous, but you're not. You sin and I sin. Guess what? I'm righteous, but you're not. Explain me that, Lucy. Alrighty, I will. Just another one. This is a powerful one. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Again, about you becoming righteous. 
He made him, God the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right. It's, it's almost, it's, it's better than just like, it's better than I do righteous because it says you are righteous. You are the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's another woohoo moment. Okay, so you died, you were born again, you were declared or made righteous, now your certificate of debt. And I, and I love that the term is debt, because we create in our sin a, a, a debt that cannot be repaid. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the circum, uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, and he has taken it, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, uh, so imagine this massive heavenly file cabinet, or file cabinets, or you know, probably they're like solid-state disk drives or something. And, and, there, and there's a drawer, you, you, know, you look at it, the little labels, you come and you get to the B's and Brady, you know, and all those other Brady's. And then you find Patrick Michael Brady, born July 3rd, 1959. Ooh, that's my folder. And you open it up. And it's like, it's as fat as the Grand Canyon is wide with certificate of every sin that I'd ever committed, every transgression I'd ever made. And the minute that I expressed saving faith to God, chose to repent sincerely from my heart and placed my faith in Jesus as my sacrificial lamb. Somebody, some big strong angel guy, because it was a big one, picked that thing up out of my file folder, walked it over to Jesus' cross and nailed it over there forever. And guess what? When I sin again, guess where it goes? It doesn't go in there. It stays up here. And it stays up here. And it stays up here. And I love that scripture because I can see it. I can see it. Somebody saying... Look at all this. He's guilty. Or maybe Satan, when I get judged, right? Stand there and Jesus says, sorry, there's nothing in his folder. It's over there. Then, Amen. Hallelujah. And finally, we're given the right to become children of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again, born of God, because he chose. He chose us before we chose him. How about that? Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, that word, it says, given the... He gave the right to become children of God. I mean, any of you that are kind of like junior Greek scholars that like to look at the words behind like I do, that word for right is exousia. Exousia is typically translated to authority. And that's an interesting one for me. In the King James, it's once in a blue moon it's translated to power. In the King James, more often it's translated to power than it is in the other translations. But typically, we would know exousia as authority. And I don't know if, if that could have been another good word to use instead of right or privilege, but we have been given that right, that authority. We can stand and have, because of our righteous relationship through Jesus Christ, we can call God our Father, and he will call us his sons and his daughters, his children. We have the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And there are people in this world that cry out to God, Daddy, God, Daddy, God, this and that. And I don't know. I mean, it says he doesn't really hear the, the unrighteous. I don't know if he hears their prayers or doesn't hear their prayers, but I know he hears his children's prayers. So that's covenant. God establishes it. He, he, he defines it might be a better word. And then we respond to it. We decide. Once we do, then we come into this relationship. So relationship with God. First, last week, that we would understand our place. Second, this week, we understand that it's established in covenant. 
So when you talk to people, you can explain to them, and again, I don't expect you'll remember all these scriptures or anything, but you can explain to them, no, you don't have an eternal relationship with God if you have an established covenant with him. I could say, I don't want to do this, and my birthday might not be so good, but you know, I could say I'm married to, I don't know, I don't even know who's like a beautiful model person, some you know, famous whatever person, I'm married to them. And they'd be like, no, you're not. I'd say, no, no, I am. I have a relationship with God. Well, how do you know? Because. No, no, you don't if you don't have covenant. That, that Whoever that person is is not my wife because we've never established covenant. I have covenant with her and her alone and only her, and she has covenant with me and me alone and only me, and we know that because we've established that covenant. So when you talk to somebody, you say, well, unless you've established covenant with God in the way that he prescribes, you, you might think you have a relationship with him, but your authority is, is not in the Bible. Your authority is in your imagination or what somebody's told you, but you can't support that authority outside of the Scripture. Only in the Scripture can we support how covenant happens in Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. This would be the time when if I was an altar call guy, I'd ask you if you wanted to establish relationship with God and covenant, but I'm not going to. But if you're concerned that you actually may not be in covenant relationship with God, um, everybody has my cell phone. You call me and we talk and we'll make sure, you should make sure. You don't want to be thinking you are when you're not because you'd be like the Lord, Lord guys in Matthew chapter 7. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And you'll read your great resume of, of righteousness and he'll say, sorry, I never knew you because the only way to know.